Good morning. Welcome to Seattle. The rain. Just kidding. Glad you're here. <clears throat> I told my kids that um, they should walk to church this morning in solidarity with all of those who have to walk to church every morning in the rain or the sunshine. And they said, um, well, we have a car and it's more convenient, you know. And I said, well, that's why I'm not walking. But I just, I threw it out there for them. So they didn't, they didn't bite this time. Listen, if you're new with us or you'd like to communicate with um, the church leadership in some way, shape, or form, this card should be sitting in front of you. So um, I'm out of breath from singing. It was good uh, to sing. That either shows I'm really out of shape or I was really into it, and I think it's a little of both. Um, but this card is, uh, is just your way, too, of, of letting us know a, a prayer request or something that's going on. Um, a lot of things are going on, not just in the news, but in our news, kind of in our world and uh, we love to, to rope into that and pray with you and uh, be a part of that and, um, and all that. So if you would, drop that in the, in the offering basket later on in the morning. Uh, how many of you have a teenager living in your house? Raise your hand and leave it up for a moment, please. The rest of you, look around you. Uh, we need to be praying for these people. Here is what they do on a regular basis. They are involved in uh, the unglorious uh, and potentially highly dangerous task of waking up teenagers. <laughs> now, um, I don't know if you enjoy waking people up, but often waking someone up is the most loving thing you could possibly do. Um, sometimes it's downright rude, but most of the time it's a, it's a loving act, and it's almost always a thankless act, at least right away, in the initial phases you're not often praised and thanked, and people just give you warm feelings when you wake them up. Uh, oftentimes, it's just the opposite. You're scorned all the way through breakfast, uh, you know, possibly glared at, um, and if they're active sleepers, possibly swung at. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's an unsafe proposition. And uh, there's, there's a part of our passage from last week that Ben just kind of touched on where it said, wake up. And arise from the dead. And if you've seen a teen sleep, you know why that ties in. Um, and we have a, a, a holiday, a holy day coming up called Easter. And it's about a month out, several weeks out. And uh, in your bulletin right now, I want you to pull out what looks like a bookmark of some sort. And we've created these little things called wake-up cards. And um, if, you, if you tie the parallel of waking a teenager up to inviting someone to church... Let me show you a couple of parallels. There may be more. But many people don't want to invite someone to church because they fear a little bit like waking a teenager up that it will be <clears throat> met with resistance. It'll be met with scorn. It'll be met with anger. It'll be met with uh, not a pleasant vibe. And yet the most loving thing we could do if the Christian message is true is to wake people up to what's really going on. Amen to that? So Easter's coming. What happens sometimes is we get on going in life and all of a sudden Easter's around the corner or we're sitting in a church service and we go, man, my brother could really have used this. My neighbor needs to hear this. Oh, that my, my workmate w- would be able to taste a fellowship like we had on Easter. Maybe next year. Well, let's not maybe next year it. Let's do it this year. And so this card is meant as just a way to think intentionally in the weeks leading up to Easter. I will invite the following people to church. I've put three names down. Maybe there's one in particular that you know has to come. Maybe you've got ten. There's two sides to it so that you can fill out one side. You can fill out the other side, drop it in the offering basket. If you choose to, write your name on the back. You don't have to. But then we as a staff and as an elder team are going to be joining with you in prayer by name for your neighbors, for your friends, for your workmates who need to wake up to spiritual realities. Someone woke you up. God used someone in your life to wake you up from slumber. And while it's often painful to be in the dark and to see any shred of light initially, aren't you glad you're awake? Spiritually, aren't you glad you went through the pain of that to see life for what it is? So these are called wake-up cards. Um, participate completely at your own free will. Uh, at some point later on in the service, um, if you already know your names, fill it out and turn it in to the offering. You can do it again next week too uh, if you would like. All right, Uh, I want you to look at your bulletin this morning, the front cover, and I want to kind of explain, (coughs) excuse me, I want to kind of explain to you the metaphor that is on the front cover. 
Uh, God wants control. Uh, in this image that I've shown to you, there is a, there's a fixed point uh, in the sky. And, of course, we know different things about uh, uh, the solar system and whatnot. But from our vantage point and kind of the canopy that is, is above us, what we see is we see this, this fixed star. We call it the North Star sometimes or the Polar Star, right? And what we see is that, that everything is re- revolving around that. And there is a, there is a big kind of picture going on there. Psalm 19, just listen to this. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech and night after night, they display knowledge. I don't know if you like to camp or if you ever like to go out and just look up. But that's a powerful passage. That's a great passage to stand in the middle of your street if it's safe, uh, or camping when you can really see the stars and look up and just see, wow, this knowledge is on display right now. And because of time-lapse photography, we can look at, at what's on the screen and say, wow, there's a, there's a fixed point and there's things going on bigger than, than, than what we see around us or what many of us think about. Now, in your image, too, is a, is a, a dwelling place, right? Some lights are on inside. Either due to distraction, or due to busyness, or due to apathy, or due to the fact that it's there every night and it's just taken for granted, there are potentially people inside who are, who are missing that proclamation. Night after night, knowledge is on display and they're missing that proclamation. Why? Because bright lights are going on inside. Because something else has their attention. And they're missing it. Do you see the metaphor? There's bigger things going on, aren't there? And for us, many of us have things uh, like screens, perhaps, that have our attention. Now, here's what's curious. Those inside would say this quite potentially. They would say that I am in control. And while sitting on their couch, they may be right on some level, right? They're sitting there, and they have complete control. I just came from my father-in-law's. I missed you guys last week. I really enjoy worshiping here. I worshiped elsewhere. It was fun to kind of go and, and be there, but, but you were missed. I want you to know that. And Ben did a great job. Thanks, Ben, for, for preaching. Got to hear it. Um, but my father-in-law has the remote of all remotes. It just it kind of controls everything. Like I pushed a button once, my left arm like went up. I was shocked. But here you sit, and you're just in utter control of, of your surrounding. You know, Some of you aren't tracking with that, so I brought this. Okay. Either way... You're, you're, you're in control, right? Whether it's a, a video game controller, a TV controller, or whatever else. Some of you are so prideful right now. You're like, I'm not into TV or any of that. Um, so I just want to, I just want to point out, okay? It's all around us. And there's also low tech, there's also low tech versions of all of this, aren't there? Things that have our attention. Things that, that have drawn us in. And on the one hand, we would say we're in control of it. But it doesn't take but looking to someone else sometimes to ask this question, wow, who's, who's really controlling who in this, in this scenario? And for any of you who have ever recovered from being a video game-holic or a computer-holic or, or a TV-holic, you know what it is to go, man, I didn't realize until I tracked it or until someone woke me up how much time was being invested in this activity, or how much of that it really had control of me. Control is an interesting word. We, we seek to possess it and fear losing it once we have it. And some people do this very subtly, very passively, and some are very aggressive with it. The word control is interesting because, in a way, I, I think we, we kind of love it or we hate it. Um, I've put up on the screen a couple of things. Here's, here's some love it. We love it when we, when we have the remote control. Some of you are like me, and you like to have the remote control in your hand. Frankly, because you do it better. Right? I mean, there's just, there's, that's, that's part of it. And there are things on my TV screen that I don't want in my home. And so I have control, and I'm actually aware of that. I'm paying attention to that. In relationships, people like to be the ones in control. This is the natural man. This is the natural woman. You don't have to be trained this way. You are bent this way to enjoy control. Some of you find safety in it. Some of you find power. Some of you find your importance in what you control. We also hate it. We hate it when rules are imposed on us. We hate it when other people are controlling us. 
Some of you are thinking of your boss right now. Some of you are thinking perhaps of a spouse. Some of you are thinking of someone way in the past who somehow still has control over you in some way, shape, or form. But we also long for it. If you've been watching the news even halfway and not living under a rock, you know the incredible things going on in our world. We long for it when it's gone. I could talk about control in the sense of politicians and unions. I could talk about control in the sense of countries and the unrest that is there. I could talk about control when it says, this is how far the oceans will go and no more. And then a tsunami comes. I could talk about control with nuclear reactors. These are things just from the last couple of weeks. So, is control an illusion? And who's really in control? These are some of the things we're going to kind of dive into and talk about from our text this morning. I want you to open up to uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to, we're going to cover a, a good little chunk here this morning in a relatively short period of time. <clears throat> as you're turning to there, I want to just highlight this fact. One of the things that we want to do as a church is not explain away the mysteries of God. There is so much paradox in the Bible <clears throat> If we could explain God to, to his fullness, we would have made him up. And he's now a false image created in our image. But I can't explain God. So there are whole mysteries to it that I just can't explain. And I want to leave room in our worship services to say that's totally okay. In fact, not only is that okay, that draws us into worship to say, I can't explain this and neither can you. There's a mystery built into the title of our message this morning. God wants control. If God is God and He's a sovereign supreme being and He wants something, can't He just poof, make it happen? I mean, if you're a sovereign and you can do whatever you want and you're all powerful, can't you just make that happen? Here's the mystery to it. The mystery to it is that God wants control And yet, in some way, shape, and form, he's invited us into a relationship. He's actually, he's actually made us partners with him in this process in some way, shape, and form. Rather than coming in and just demanding or forcing his will on us, he can impose his will on anything in the whole universe. He's God. He created it with a whisper. It's so much bigger than us. And yet, in some paradoxical way, he wants control, but he doesn't come in and and just force his way in. He enters into relationship with us. And that's a whole direction that we're not necessarily going to go to, but the idea that he stands at the door of our soul and he knocks. Waiting to be let in is a mystery in and of itself from how God could have chosen to do it. Today we're talking about spirit-filled living. I enjoyed posting on our... By the way, we have a Facebook group. If you'd like to join, uh, just look us up. But I enjoyed posting a question, what does spirit-filled living bring to mind? And several of you just responded. It was neat. It was encouraging kind of to see those throughout the week, um, just what that meant to you, what spirit-filled living meant to you. And if you think about spirit-filled living, it really is talking about a spirit-controlled life. Now, many things compete for control, passions, emotions, substances, whether legal or otherwise, um, and even just the, the ticking clock. A lot of things, think about your week, a lot of things uh, kind of battle for control of you. Some of you feel trapped. You feel locked into certain things. And you go, man, I'm, I'm, I'm actually being taken where I don't want to go. We're going to explore some of that this morning. Jesus was controlled by none of the above that I just mentioned. Let me read for you just one passage. John 14, 31 says, The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Time and again, what we see in Jesus Christ is that he came to fulfill the will of the Father. That means this. You want to look at what it looks like to be controlled by God, you look to Jesus Christ. Because in each moment, he was in control. He was fulfilling the will of his Father. Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 15, and we're gonna, I'm gonna reach back a couple verses from where Ben went last week. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Would you pray with me? Spirit, this morning, uh, I, on behalf of the rest of us, just offer you control and pray that you would steer our hearts and steer our minds to where you would want us to to go this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Who are you? There's a few people kind of mentioned in this passage, and um, and they're they're laid out here in what we just read. Uh, I don't have the screens in front of me, so I'm going to be looking back a bunch. Sorry. Um, there's the wise. And for the wise, I just want to say, uh, if you would, if you want to fill in and kind of follow along, just write the word skillful. Those who are wise are skillful at, at what they are uh, doing. Also mentioned in here is the unwise. Those who are unwise are simply lacking wisdom, right? Uh, and, and we see this in kind of the secular natural world, and we see it uh, in things of God as well. The third one mentioned here is the foolish. Those who are foolish aren't just lacking wisdom. They're actually living contrary to wisdom. And it's not hard. Some of you are rolling through a Rolodex right now, and you're thinking of other people. Here's what I want you to do. Stop that. I want you to think of yourself. What, what would other people maybe think about you? Which, which of you does, does your life live up to on, on that scale? It's pretty easy sometimes to look at other people. But, but would you say that you're wise? Are you skillful? Are you unwise? Or are you a fool? Probably in some way, shape, or form, we would say, well, what day is it? <laughs> what situation is it? What time of the day is it? Has the coffee been served? You know, I mean, there's different things that kind of, you know, uh, tend to maybe dictate that. But, but maybe we feel like we're in all three camps in some way, shape, or form. Wisdom is held in high honor throughout the scriptures. And um, Proverbs are, of course, a great, a great place to go for that. Um, but I've just put a couple of wisdom's virtues on your, on your notes this morning. One is that it's more valuable than treasure. I wonder if we really believe this or not. In fact, I don't think we do. Um, but, but if we, if we really believe that this is God's word, if we really believe that understanding, meditating, and being soaked in God's word was greater than treasure, then, then that means that, that we would pursue it in the same way that, that we might pursue other things, um, that, that, that hold value to us. And uh, certainly it's spiritually discerned, or else everyone would just clamor to constantly be in the Word, but it's, it's veiled in some way. Proverbs 16, 16 says this, how much better to get wisdom than gold? I mean, just think about your life. Do you buy that? To choose understanding rather than silver. That means there's a pile of gold down one path and there's a really wise person to walk through life with on the other path. And which would you choose? Interesting question. We know from the Bible that it's different from worldly wisdom. We won't go there, but 1 Corinthians one twenty-five talks about this. Paul is actually contrasting um, a really common Greek idea. and the, the, the idea in the Greek culture is very similar to our culture. And that is this. The the more you grow in knowledge, the closer you get to God. And some would even say that, um, that, that my knowledge leads me not only to God, but in some belief systems to be God-like, so that you actually turn into God as you acquire knowledge. Now, from our vantage point, that makes a ton of sense. The gospel, of course, as many of you know, is a, defi- a, a, a divine descendant. It's God coming down to man. It's not about man ascending. It's not a man, about man getting better and better, higher and higher in, in their spiritual plane so that they're approaching God-like qualities. But rather, if God didn't come and reveal to us, we would flat out be in the dark. And that's where all of us are currently or were at some point in time. That's what revelation is about. The other thing about wisdom that sometimes we get from our culture is that it's really stoic, that it's isolated from the common people. It's the, it's the ivory tower, um, elite kind of point of view. 
you know what the Bible does? The Bible chucks all of that, and the Bible gave wisdom, God's wisdom, to fishermen. God's wisdom to tax collectors, just, you know, workers of the state. God, in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, taught in such a way that it was accessible to people. Didn't have to read and write. Grabbed earthy things to an earthy culture and said, here's a mustard seed. Let me tell you about the kingdom of God and how this relates to it. I mean, it's really a beautiful picture of who God takes and uses, actually, to shame the wise of this world by revealing this must be from God and not from themselves. Let me quickly give you five distinctions of what I'm just going to call God-wise living. Okay, These are distinctions of what the wisdom of God looks like, and all of these really come in the form of commands. There, there are five words that I'm going to put in a succinct way for you, but they're tied into specific commands that Paul is addressing or giving to the Ephesian church here. Remember, he's talking to Christians. It's very important as we look through the Bible, and we're studying the book of Ephesians, we've been in it for weeks now, to reach back to the start of this. This is to the saints that are at Ephesus. This is to believers. You've already been born again. Your eyes have already been enlightened. And so you are empowered to live this way. Here they are. First one is time. Verse 16, he says, redeem the time or make the best use of the time because the days are evil. I'm so behind here. There we go. So watch. Um, <clears throat> we're not going to spend a whole bunch of time uh, discussing how to redeem the time. I think we do that on a regular basis. We discuss pretty openly and frankly about about urgency. But but I want to I want to look for a moment at the at the the days are evil portion of this passage. The basic message of redeeming the time is to say it's it's tied into a couple verses earlier. Wake up. Live with some urgency. Don't live in a bubble, whether it's a Christian bubble or a little work secular bubble where we're all chasing kind of the same things as everyone else. Make the best use of your time. You don't even know if you have tomorrow. It's not guaranteed for any one of us. So wake up. That's, that's the message of, of re, redeeming the time. The days are evil. Let me just say a few words. One is that God is working a plan. The overarching uh, theme of the book of Ephesians is the word one that we've chosen. And there is one plan being worked by one God to one end that we would be one. I mean, this is, this is all through Ephesians. It leaps off the page. And to understand and to wake up and to live in the reality, God is working a plan today. Forces you or compels you to get on board with that and say, God, what are you doing in this situation? How are you moving in this? How am I one day going to praise you out of a joyful heart where right now I just praise you out of a trusting heart? but also a hurting heart. God's working a plan, and we're part of it. And time is of the essence. So now is not the time for leisure. Now is not the time for giving in or withdrawal, but to be renewed in our commitment and our resolve to complete the task that is assigned to us as Christians. What's the task assigned to us as Christians? Let me hear it. What? Bringing glory to God, making disciples, teaching them all I've commanded, living as children of the light, living as imitators of God as beloved children. The will of God is spelled out for us such that a first grader can read the Bible and understand it. Do not camp out and say, I, I'm paralyzed, I can't move because I just don't know what the will of God is. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to get to that in, in a second. But now is the time for action. My wife constantly compels me. We can rest when we're in heaven. Our rest time is coming. If I'm ever griping or complaining or whining about that, that's the message my wife gives me. God knew I needed a wife that would tell me that once in a while. Rest comes later. And that's a great message to understand. Here's the second thing. The days are evil. Therefore, remember what our hope is. Our hope is in Christ's return. The days are evil. Why is a bunch of bad stuff going on? Always the fundamental answer is we're under a curse. It fits a biblical worldview. Does that mean God's cold and uncaring and distant? Absolutely not. He entered into human history. He walked with those who were hurting and, and all of that. But 
But the world is under a curse. The days are evil. So our hope is always in Christ's return. Therefore, escapism is not an option. Here's another thing about the days are evil and to make the most of the time, is that God is working in history right now to accomplish his will. It's a staging ground for what is to come. What I mean by escapism is this. Those who ought to be most in the know, those who ought to be most pursuing truth, ought to be Christians. We have a, we have a pulled back picture of what God's doing because the Bible's been delivered to us as a gift. And so therefore, we ought to not be trapped and just kind of sucked into to whatever's popular right now and kind of moseying through life, which is so easy for many of us to do. The word missional is really, really popular right now. And any word that gets too popular, like a song that gets too popular, I start to get turned off by it. That's probably my flesh just, you know, rejecting it. But missional this, missional that. Everyone wants to be on missional, missional community groups, missional this. There's a certain recapturing of that that's really, really good. But it's also nothing new. It's nothing different than what God has constantly called the church to do. And that is you've been given an assignment. Complete it. You're my witnesses. That's what you are. You've been redeemed for this very purpose. Thirdly is, uh, when, when some people hear the days are evil, people in church especially can sometimes get in this kind of a mode. Amen to that. And it's kind of this us and them push the walls out and let's gather in here as often as possible throughout the week to be protected from out there. Here's what the debase contemporary society says to me. Read your history books. There has rarely been any season of time where passionate Christians fighting for justice, fighting for righteousness, fighting and proclaiming God's truth hasn't been needed to the utmost effect. Most people are very prejudiced about their own society they live in. We're a little bit like kindergartners this way. We think what's happening right now has never happened before. It's so evil out there. I could read you quote after quote after quote and then tell the date of when it was said and you'd be floored. I do this once in a while. I read a quote and everyone's like, Amen, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Which is just not a pretty picture. And then I'll read the date and it was like 1610 that this guy was proclaiming this on the streets of London or something. And everyone's kind of shocked, saying, well, that's true now, too. And that's the point. We live in a debased society. It actually fits a biblical worldview. We're in a battle. The sons of this age are opposed to the plan of God. Many are convinced they're fighting for good, that they're fighting for God, when in fact, they're actually fighting contrary to God. Right? I mean, our minds should be filling with examples right now. Let me take you way back to the Bible, to a guy named Paul, who was zealously fighting for God, killing Christians. And at one point, on his way to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? Lord, (laughs) who is it? It's Jesus, the one that you're battling against. And that radical transformation opened his eyes to say, wow, here I was zealous for God, fighting what I thought was the good fight, and I was the enemy. I was pulling in the exact opposite direction. Here are the questions you're going to go through as a community group this week. Is your calendar, with regards to time, is your calendar world-wise or God-wise? It's a really revealing thing to just track your time. Track every hour of your day for a two-week span. I would just challenge you to do that. Just track your time for a two-week span and just look at it and say, what does that dictate? Now, some of you, I, I know you're already saying, but I've got responsibilities. I understand that. Fulfill your responsibilities. Within those responsibilities, though, let me throw this second question out. What fringe moments are being wasted, or worse yet, actually pulling in the opposite direction of God, like Paul was? So not just wasting, but actually um, hurting the spread of the gospel. Hurting a a love message that, that God is promoting. What fringe moments are being wasted or, or opposite? And how can you buy back these moments? Let me throw a few out to you. Your commute. How about lines? How about meals? How about bedtime? How about your weekend? How about Sabbath day? How about your vacation? 
We all have certain uh, big chunks of time that we have to do. We have to go to our job. We have to do these various things. We have to tend to the you know, household chores, all these kinds of things. Those, those are fixed and those are fine. Even within there, there's room to buy back time, right? But how about in these other, in these other moments? God-wise or world-wise? You redeem the time, and what happens is there's understanding. Let me give you, um, man, just, just a couple of quick things. Um, on my visor is scripture memory, often. Uh, laminated cards that once in a great while, this is classic, when the Jeep top is off, they just go flying into the wind. Now, I know that's littering and not very green, but that's God's word. It's just the seed. And I'm like, man, someone needed James more than I did today. And so they're going to find it and hopefully, you know, and hopefully memorize it. But you know what that's great for? At a stoplight, instead of bebopping through life, I just look up and I say, man, I want to, I want to look. It's actually kind of visual. I look up. Just look up and just soak in God's word. And that's what, and that's what can go on. Uh, the iPhone's an amazing thing. All of your smartphones, they're really, really, really smart. It's a little, it's a little unnerving for me. But in line, while I'm waiting for an appointment, I mean, I could, I could flip through. And by the way, I play Angry Birds, so I'm not trying to come down on those of you who do uh, Farkle and Farmville and whatever else is... Farmville is so, like, two weeks ago. Uh, anyways, whatever's hot right now, my household is playing this Pocket Frogs game, and it actually turns my stomach. The sound of it is so weird that it kind of... Is, anyways, I'm not against those. I'm not, I'm not standing up here and saying, thou shall not do any of that. What I am saying is this. If you're spending eight hours a day, if you're the best person in the world at this game, there might be a problem. Because there's a lot of people in the world playing that game, and you shouldn't be quite that good at it. Instead, here's, here's what I want you to consider is, um, for Pete's sake, get a Bible on your, on your, on your phone. Just, just have a prayer list written out on your phone. She's putting together a visual directory of our church. How could it be just to have pictures of people in your community, in, in your church, and you're just swiping through pictures of them, and as their picture comes up, you're just praying for them. God, reveal yourself to them. Be with them. Help them to know their love by you. Strengthen them today in the inner man. Wow. That way you're not stressed out when someone's late. You've been, you just met with God right there at the burrito place. You're not freaking out in line. You're, you're, you're sitting there just on the lookout. I'll tell you what happens when my mindset is that way. You know what happens? My eyes open to the person in front of me who's a whole universe of, of people. And you begin to engage. Not every time. It doesn't mean, did you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? It doesn't mean you have to do that every time in line. But what it does do, it opens your eyes to the world around you in, in a way that's different than just locked in to, to whatever's there. So many different things, but I told you I wouldn't do it, so I'm not going to do it. Next one. Choice. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Number 17. Do you see that there's so much here that we could go into, but we're not? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Anyone ever hear this, that you can't make an informed decision until you're informed? Ever hear that phrase? That's a good little pithy phrase to live by. It's very true spiritually. If the will of God is discerned spiritually, then until you're spiritually informed, you're, you're, you're not going to make an informed decision. I'd say it this way. It's crucial that you're awake. Remember the demanding series? Before we got into anything else God wants of your life, He wants you to be born again. In fact, He says you must be born again. It's the starting point. You don't get mad at a dead guy for not doing dishes. He's dead. He, you, you'd be foolish to ask Him to do anything. He needs to wake up first. It's the starting point. Listen to 1 Corinthians. I may have put it in your notes. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Get it that it's crucial that we're awake? Otherwise, it comes off as foolishness. Our senses can be numbed, our thoughts dulled, and so we're to keep alert in every situation. To know what God wants us to do. That means that we think sometimes we're on a mission to go to Osh to get something for the house and God actually has us on a different mission. You ever been there? You ever find yourself in a situation uh, being with someone and you go, wow, I thought I was here to do this. I'm not. I'm here to share with this guy. I'm here to listen to this guy. I love hearing stories about this. Rob's really good at it. Rob, Rob talks to a lot of people as a property manager. I hear a lot of stories where Rob is just there and in his mind, I don't want to elevate Rob too much because... He's a punk like the rest of us, but 
Rob, Rob is mindful when he's talking with people that he'll just sit there and, and he will engage with him. I get so many stories from Rob in his, in just in the course of a regular week where he's there to do business and carry on business, but, but there's a whole other reason why he was there that day. It's so powerful, isn't it, to read the scriptures in the morning and just get filled up and just be soaking in this one area of scripture. And later on that day, you could not have orchestrated this if you were the smartest person in the world. Someone standing before you. And what they are needing is a word from the Lord. And the word from the Lord that they need, catch this, is what you read that morning and meditated on that morning. Is that happening to you? Please say yes. That's what I want for you. I really am longing for you to experience this. That instills faith in me. Time and again, it instills faith in me. I talked to a person this week. He's a teacher, and he basically just asked. He said, do you have, uh, do you have your messages just all lined up for a whole year? And it's just like a, a calendar, basically, is, is the idea. And are they pre, pre-packaged? I say, no, they, they come every single week, brand new, fresh. And I said, what we do at our church, what we tend to do is we teach through a book of the Bible. And what's so profound is, is that week after week, I'll be preaching on something because it's just in the text. That's where we are. And someone will come up and say, Dave, you won't believe it. But the fact that you taught on that this week uh, prepared me for, for, for Thursday of that week. Or it really answered all these things that were going on earlier in my week and it set my mind to ease and it, and it reset. Now, I promise you, that's not me. I'm not smart enough to, 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 to do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit orchestrating these things. And it's so faith-building to see that. We all have a choice in every situation. Are we choosing God or not? Here's what I want you not to neglect. I don't want you to to neglect ongoing prayer, the spiritual disciplines, devoted times of asking, seeking, and knocking. God, is this your will? God, is this where you want me to go? Not sitting on your haunches, you know, waiting for, for it to be revealed in some spectacular way. Don't neglect regular times of corporate worship. Don't neglect regular times of intimate fellowship with other believers. You know what all of those things do in my life? They clarify for me what God's doing. They clarify His will. God puts something on your heart and you say, wow, I need to test this. We're supposed to test the spirits. Don't go with your gut every time. That leads to a nightmare. But God puts something on your heart. He begins to confirm it in these different ways. Little tiny things. At church on Sunday where I was up in Folsom, um, we sat down, huge church, 2,000 plus member church. And I sat down and the first thing talked about was their pastor had just returned from Ethiopia. And he's sharing pictures about things. And they're a huge church. They're They're doing this right here. They're doing 200 children in a region in Ethiopia, and he had just returned from visiting their World Vision headquarters. You don't think I'm peaked right there just hearing what it is? Most of you know, but we're adopting from Ethiopia. I mean, there are just these things along the way that I just keep saying, thank you, Lord. And by the way, be in prayer. There's just the adoption roller coaster is just that. It's an up and down thing, and we received... Uh, there's always phone calls that are good news and other ones that are a struggle where, again, we'll say, Lord, we'll praise you on the back end of this from joy. Right now, we praise you from trust. And that's where we were at this week. We sit down in church. And we get to hear and see pictures of Ethiopia and orphanages. And it was awesome. It was a great a great sign. Um, Lucas and Wendy. I told Wendy I was going to pick on you guys. I didn't tell you, Lucas, but here it goes. <laughs> um, this, this couple that's sitting in the second row... Um, received uh, this week a pink slip and a visit to the hospital with some stitches. Uh, and that was just in the last seven days. Um, what, what was so powerful to me is to watch them interact with, uh, I'm not in their community group, um, but I'm like big brother, I spy on it. And um, I'm, on, I'm on this list, and it was so powerful to just see them write this email that said, be in prayer for us. We know God has a plan for us. We're hopeful. We, we already know that, that he's got this mapped out. So just pray for us as we seek that out and what's going on. And as they ask for prayer, you know what they ask for prayer about? They ask for prayer with hope. They ask for prayer with expectation that God's working a plan. They ask with the, with the, with the secure knowledge that God's totally sovereign and is bigger than pink slips and stitches. 
And praise God, I thought, here's a younger couple that understands the way God moves and the way to make a decision better than many people who've supposedly walked with the Lord for years and years, and they never take into consideration anything but the natural world. Many Christians move from one place to another without ever thinking about the spiritual ramifications of what they're doing. They think about the job, the paycheck, the climate, parks nearby, schools. And I'll come along and say, brother, sister, have you thought about the church that you're going to be in? Have you thought about how you're going to provide for your family spiritually? Have you looked into any of that? Have you figured out yet if God even wants you in this field anymore? I mean, those are the those are bringing supernatural, spiritually discerned elements to it. And that's what understanding the will of the Lord is. Here's the questions you're going to go over as community groups. What decisions are you facing right now? All of you are facing some kind of decision. Some really monumental, potentially life-changing. Some just kind of maybe more mundane, but you're all facing decisions. Is the wisdom that you're guided by void of God or godly? Is it filled up with God? Do you understand what the will of the Lord is? Or is it really just explainable in a natural sense? Do you understand what the will of the Lord is? Let me say that we're created to walk in community. Time and time and time again, brothers and sisters have pointed out my blind spots, have helped me put the pieces together in things that I was just too close, I couldn't see it. And I praise God for the community, for the body that he's provided us. Lean on the body to clarify God's will. And remember that foolishness, in a natural sense, is often the wisdom of God. It's often just exactly opposite. You would choose one person for a task for for being missional. God chooses someone totally different. You would choose one thing as thinking, but this makes the most sense. There are many things I've done in my life, I say, this doesn't make sense. People hear, you know, people say, you know, you've got five kids already, isn't that enough? Isn't, isn't seven going to be a bit, isn't that a bit, you know, crazy? I go, it's, it's insane. I mean, are you kidding me? It's nuts. And they go, yeah. And they kind of take a step back for safety. And, and the point is, is that yes, strictly from a natural sense, I would say, let's be done. But God beckons and God calls and it makes absolute sense to us. And you've been there too. Some of you have quit jobs that made no sense for you to quit that job and move over into this profession. Uh, I, I had lunch with a, with a, with a couple uh, this week that they're not living to just keep going to the, to the pinnacle, get that retirement so they can finally relax in comfort and style. They're actually moving the pieces of their life around in such a way they say, we know God wants us in Africa one day. So for right now, we're firemen. And, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do the fireman thing, but we're, we're being prepped for, for um, some kind of a task in Africa. So interesting. I, I love the way God works in, in all of this. Number three, the word is control. Be filled with the Spirit. It seems a little odd to have this sudden warning about drunkenness. It seems a little bit out of place to suddenly bring up not getting drunk with wine, but I want to just show you briefly what Paul's getting at and why it's there. Interesting that we're talking about this on St. Patrick's Day or near St. Patrick's Day, isn't it? Um, There's a contrast here. Uh, One, getting drunk with wine is short-lived ecstasy and often leads to destructive kinds of places. Not always, but most of the time. Versus a genuine ecstasy that is not only creative, but actually builds up and is, is the opposite of destructive. It's, it's constructive. Both controlling forces, being filled with the Spirit or being filled with wine, are internal controlling forces. Some of you have heard this phrase. That's just the alcohol talking, right? That's just the wine talking. Liquid courage. Yes, pastors know these things. Uh, but these, these are the things. That it's, it's an internal kind of controlling that, 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 that can move out. And it's actually a really brilliant parallel. 
Now listen to Paul uh, to uh, Proverbs 23. It says this. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the riggings. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me up, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up? When will I wake up so I can find another drink? Here's what I want to say from us in the Bible. It's just in the middle of your Bible, Proverbs. We see that played out. Some of you have lived that out, maybe. Paul's warning here is, is direct and literal. Now, let me say two things before I move on to a, a few bullet points about this. One is this. Christian freedom is a little bit like the word missional. It's really hot right now. It's really popular for about the last 10 plus years um, to pronounce our freedom as Christians. And, to, and there's much of that that's actually really, really good. Some may have grown up in the 50s and 60s where the general church evangelical message was this, you know, don't drink or smoke or chew or girls go with girls who do kind of a thing. Don't go to movies, not just rated R ones, but any of them. Um, and what, what happened was there was a, there was a, a shell, kind of an outward shell uh, that, that could very easily be maintained um, or you just went underground with it. Um, but, but what it was was it was stifling to the spiritual life. And it was thought that if you just keep these things going, then, then you'll have all that Jesus promised and all that. And what they found out was, they meaning the church, they meaning maybe some of us, is that's not true. That's never what Jesus called us to do anyways. But in this Christian freedom that's being promoted and preached and whatnot, there's a certain sense where, uh, where, where, where Christians, especially younger Christians, and again, I've dealt with college students for a lot of years, and so um, all of a sudden it's legal. All of a sudden Christian freedom is promoted, and so you say, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink, because there's nothing in the Bible that says I can't drink. And I say, no, actually, quite to the contrary. Um, something else is Jesus put his stamp of approval on wine by making barrels and barrels of it at a wedding. So what I want you to do is this. For those of you who are like, oh, he's just a pastor, he's just going to slam it all outright and altogether. Not true. Jesus put his stamp of approval on it as good. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave that there. However, what I want to do is this. I don't think there's enough said in many Christian churches. It's either overboard where it's just outright no and it's demanding pharisaical rules being kept that are anti-biblical, that are extra biblical. Now we're back in the fifties. Or it's just Trusting and understanding that everyone's got a handle on this and they're all good with it. So it's being brought up in our text. I want to bring it up to you. Here are a couple of things. One is this. We're told explicitly in the scriptures, don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. The word debauchery has the idea of destroying the self. So this is just good loving advice from your pastor. Don't destroy yourself. I mean, that's really all it's saying, right? And so we can, we can agree to that. If we're, if we're biblically faithful, we can at least agree and say that to the point at which you're getting drunk with wine, that that's, that that's a problem. Um, let me move on. Uh, oh, by the way, there's a, there's a couple of ways of, of destroying. There's kind of the snooty way or the streetwise way. It's kind of like blue-collar, white-collar here a little bit. Proverbs 20 captures this great. Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. The point being this. You could be really snooty in your upscale, you know, San Francisco unit apartment, whatever's going on, you know, and, and you're, you're as enslaved to, to high expensive class wine and substance that leads to destruction. That basically has slapped a cuff on you and is leading you down the road to destruction. Or you could be back out behind you know, a, a trailer, you know, sl- slamming beers out of a can and crushing them on your forehead or something and be in exactly the same boat. And we see this, I mean, this is a great place to see this. There are really high class places that are enslaving people. There are real dives that are enslaving people. The point is, both of those lead to destruction. We know that wine as a substance, those of you who've either walked down this road and struggled with it, are struggling with it, or have had a family member struggle with it, you know the controlling power of alcohol. <clears throat> I had a grandfather who died. He drank himself to death, quite literally. 
And I just watched his body, you know, bulge and get bigger as his body couldn't process the amount of poison that he just kept pouring into his life. Everyone in the family, some of you have been through this, just, just tried to, there wasn't the show intervention at the time, and so we tried to do it our old school way, and we just tried to say, you're killing yourself. You're destroying yourself. And he even knew that, but, but he couldn't stop, and he literally drank himself to death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful to me. Drinking is lawful to me. Christian freedom is absolutely right. It's lawful. But not all things are profitable, and I will not be mastered by anything. So we're talking about alcohol because alcohol is in the text, but let me, let me balloon this out a little bit. Ben brought up pornography last week. Outside of alcohol are all kinds of substances, legal, illegal, and kind of in the middle. You know, prescription drugs are legal to a point, and then they turn illegal, right? So, so just look for it. It's not hard. There are many controlling substances, forces going on in this world. Are any of us mastered by them or struggling with mastery of them? Jesus said quite clearly about money, you can't serve two masters. You'll be devoted to one and hate the other, or you'll love the one and despise the other. Money is perfectly legal, but it can be as controlling. The context of sins here that, that was just listed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, by the way, are all sins that destroy the body. They're all sensual kinds of sins, seedy kinds of sins. Uh, and he lists in the middle of those drunkards. And he says drunkards, amidst all these other people, if your life is characterized by this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Finally, alcohol is listed in the works of the flesh in multiple places, like I just mentioned. The word fool is attached to it. The word trapped, mastered, weighed down are all uh, attributed to it or near it in the scriptures. And finally, just think about this both biblically and think about this culturally. Sexual sin is absolutely bathed in alcohol. So many times alcohol played some sort of a part in, just read the newspaper, in, in sexual kinds of sin. It's just there. The word is caution. The word is, um, my, my challenge to you, my invitation is to you, is this. Make sure that you're so far from the edge. If you're on a two-foot-wide trail hiking up Yosemite and there's a drop-off, and you're watching people slide off the slippery slope, you hug so far over here that your shoulder's getting scraped up by the granite wall once in a while and not middle of the road, and certainly not peeking over, wondering what looks so fun, and everyone's yelling and screaming and having a great time. What happened to them? Oh, I would just caution you, church, friends, to be on that side. Paul says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Two chapters earlier, he prayed this, that that the Christians he was writing to, that this church he was writing to, catch this, would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And we talked about this weeks ago, but he's praying for an actual reality already happening, that is that you're filled with the spirit at rebirth. But Christ is more and more at your home, more and more at home in your life as you're yielded to him. And that's the kind of feeling he's referring to. Questions for your groups this week. Do you spend more time contemplating the next drink or other high, whatever it might be, or your next enraptured moment in the spirit? Oh, that we as a people would be so preoccupied with the plan of God and the world that is to come that we would appear distracted and foolish to those who are living just for this world. Wouldn't that be a great thing to be characterized by? Not obnoxiously so, where you need to go out and force that to happen, but where your decision-making, things just look different. That's what holy is. It's set apart and different and called to a different purpose. Here's the fourth one, delight. He says that we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> singing and making melody in your heart. Uh, it's, it's interesting to look at our circumstances right now and say, does God really mean that we're to give thanks and rejoice in everything and be thankful for everything? That's what the scriptures teach us. 
Is it harder on some days than others? Absolutely. I hope your prayers towards uh, Japan right now are not only for those who are hurting and suffering, not only those who the Red Cross can help, but are you praying for our brothers and sisters, Christians in Japan, that right now had the doors fling open to them. All of a sudden, you know what? The iPad 2 was delayed in its release in Japan. Duh. Who cares about the iPad 2? No one cares about it anymore in Japan. The doors of the gospel are flung wide open when something like that goes on. When you're discussing things about eternal life and about things that really matter in our day and age and in our culture and in our city, a lot of times people yawn at you, get mad at you, don't have the time of day for you. When a Katrina comes and punches your city in the face, people are open. Can I pray for you? You bet. Do you have have something to pray for? Of course. Are you insane? Let's pray. That's what our brothers and sisters in Japan right now are, are experiencing. Are we lifting them up in prayer? Are we praying, God, hold them in your strong right hand. You fill them with your spirit and the inner being. That they'd be able to communicate. That they'd be strong witnesses for you. That their life would be so radically different. That their hope is so fixed on something different that it's like a shining star in a dark place. The early church had little to celebrate except for the treasure they'd found in Christ. Look at their circumstances. Most, if not many, were poor. Persecuted. Abandoned by their families. Shunned from the society. At odds with the Jewish leaders and the synagogue. Thrown out of that. Accused of heretics and being a side sect. Their leader was killed. And yet, what was the early church characterized by? Unspeakable, uncontainable joy. So convicting. Can we thank God and rejoice in all situations? We can. We don't have to know the end of the story. We don't have to be in control, but celebrate the one who is in control. Christ, not circumstances, produces that kind of joy. 1 Corinthians 5.16 echoes the same sort of thing. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Understand what the will of the Lord is. What is it? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Now listen to the last part of this passage. It moves into this. Very next verse, do not quench the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't compete with the Spirit, with other substances controlling you. Do not quench the Spirit. And these things are a fruit of that. A couple quick thoughts. One is that public worship is absolutely taught and mandated in Scripture to come and publicly speak to one another. Have you ever thought that as we praise and worship God, we might be actually singing words to the person in front of us that needs to hear it from another person? I mean, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs doesn't mean that we walk up and go, Oh, God, my... You know, we don't do that. We don't, we don't just talk to each other in song that way or rap at each other or whatever. But what, it, but what it is, is that, catch, catch this image, once a week, probably for, for most of us, we have a unique opportunity to all be together as God's people and to hear voices of praise lifted to God. Uh, as a worship leader, at, at times I say this. Maybe, this. maybe this morning you shouldn't be singing the words. Maybe you should just let the words wash over your life and your soul and your mind and just be cleansing for you and empowering for you. Let others speak to you in these ways. The idea of religion and your spirituality being about you and God in a private matter perverts the New Testament picture of community and public worship. It's absolutely untrue that that's biblical. Couldn't we preach a whole message on worship style? We could. There's so many battles fought over worship style. I went to a church this weekend that was totally a different style in a lot of ways than ours. When you're 2,500 members, you know, it's a little different. People love to fight over the style. People love to, to argue and battle over things. And here's, here's the challenge. Here's the problem. Most of the time, most all of the time, it's over form and not the essence of what worship is. What if we fought over what worship really was? Rob read a passage that it's, it's spirit and truth. Here's what the essence is according to Scripture. The Scriptures are incredibly silent 
on specific forms of worship. We're going to celebrate communion today. That's one of the few ordinances that were left saying, do this as you publicly gather. But they didn't say, have drums, have an organ, wear a tie, don't wear a tie, sit in rows, sit in a triangle. They didn't do any of that. I mean, the Bible is remarkably silent on that. You know what that says? There's freedom there. God's concerned with the essence of it. And as you read the scriptures and understand the essence of worship, it certainly isn't geographically emphasized or event emphasized. Jesus is talking with the woman at the well. Remember what it was? And he says, look, it's neither this mountain nor Jerusalem. Spirit and truth. It's wherever you are always. Praising Christ is praising Christ. Therefore, if you prize Christ in a trial... And a trial is a small word for, let's say, the Japanese people right now. But if you're prizing Christ, you've caught the essence of worship. You're praising Him as you prize Him above all other things. As you prize a godly wisdom over gold, you're praising Christ with each decision that you make along those lines. Therefore, most people who say, yeah, I just can't worship to such and such, or this is to this, or that's to that, most often, many times, that's a hard issue of the person. Now, in a church family, let me just throw this out to you. In a church family, where we recognize we have a wide variety of opinions on here. Guess what? There's a wide variety on the band every single week. Josh is uh, j- jumped in on the ukulele this morning, which was awesome. Thanks, Josh. I met with Josh. Here's what I told Josh. I said, Josh, you will play songs in the band that you can't stand. You're sick of them. You don't think they're very cool. They don't minister to you. They don't just lift your spirits. That's being in a band. That's being in a family. There will be other songs you'll sing, and they'll just minister. You're like, man, why doesn't everyone have tears in their eyes right now? That's, that's part of it, is, is that we come together and, and do that. Question for you, what delights you? What puts a song in your heart? What wakes you up in the morning? Uh, let me invite our worship team up. We're going to right now uh, live out, practice singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. As the band is coming, let me give you our last word. Our last word is surrender. It might be a better thermometer of our worship rather than the quality of our voice in church, rather than our church attendance, rather than our long list of ministry accomplishments, but how well we submit to one another in worship. Paul's going to give an overarching principle. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then in the weeks to come, next week, catch this, married people, we're going to dive right into husbands and wives. The following week, parents and children. The week after that, slaves and masters. How does head-subordinate relationship work in the church? We see this as a sign of worship sometimes, but it's also a sign of surrender, isn't it? I give up. Take my wallet. You've got a gun, I don't. So, so as we raise our hands in worship, I thought about this this morning because I knew where we were going in the text. As we raise our hands in worship, what if, what if in our relationships to one another, we raise our hands in surrender? Not because the person's deserving, but out of reverence for Christ. Jesus, I prize you so much that I will surrender my will. I'll surrender my rights in this circumstance. And let me promise you, everything in my flesh is screaming out to do just the opposite and demand control. But this is worship to you. I I revere you. I worship you. And out of that reverence, I submit in this relationship. Don't miss next week if you're married. Don't Don't miss next week if you're thinking of getting married. Here's a couple of questions. Is it possible to be submitted to Jesus and not be submitted to one another? Hmm. Those who claim to be in Christ must walk as Jesus did. If you find yourself not submitting to anyone else on this planet, sometimes you have to externally, but internally you're like, I'm standing on the inside. You know what? You ought to question your faith. You ought to question your security. If you're in Christ, you walk as Jesus did. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We can't muster this up. You've tried. That doesn't work. 
Second question, what does our submission to one another reveal about the validity of our reverence for God? Do we prize God or our own control more? Let me just read this passage, and this is going to move us right into communion. Uh, This week for communion, uh, we're going to pass the trays, and I'm just going to ask that you would take the communion elements uh, as you go. Sometimes we take it together and stop and do it that way, but we're just going to pass the tray. As the tray comes by, um, take the, the piece of cracker representing the body and drink the cup representing the blood. And for our communion passage this week, let me point to one who modeled for us the ultimate in yielded, hands-up, surrender, and submission. That's Jesus, right? He emptied himself. Didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he gave up all of that, so much more than you will ever give up in your marriage. So much more than you will ever give up, kids, to your parents in the workplace, to your teachers at school. Here's our communion passage this week. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Jesus, you taught us what a surrendered life looks like. And Jesus, we understand by faith that your yielded life produced for us eternal life. And that's what we're celebrating right now. And not only do we look to the past and the event that you did to set us free from all other controlling forces and to buy us back, to redeem us, but we think about the present right here and now that your Spirit indwells us such that Paul could pray that we'd be strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit who indwells us. And we can't talk about the past and the present without pointing to the future and proclaiming our hope in your return. That you are sovereign right now. That you are in control right now. That you are coming again as a reigning, ruling king to set all things aright. We praise you for these physical elements that we're about to partake. In Jesus' name, amen.